Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. Annie Besant by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bitter attacks were made on me for my socialist advocacy by some of the radicals in the Free Thought Party, and looking back, I find myself condemned as a Saint Athanasius in petticoats, and as possessing a mind like a milk jug. This same courteous critic remarked. I have heard Mrs. Besant described as being, like most women, at the mercy of her last male acquaintance for her views on economics. I was foolish enough to break a lance in self-defense with this assailant, not having then learned that self-defense was a waste of time that might be better employed in doing work for others. I certainly should not now take the trouble to write such a paragraph as the following. The moment a man uses a woman's sex to discredit her arguments, the thoughtful reader knows that he is unable to answer the arguments themselves. But really these silly sneers at women's ability have lost their force, and are best met with a laugh at this stupendous male self-conceit of the writer. I may add that such shafts are specially pointless against myself. A woman who thought her way out of Christianity and Whiggism into free thought and radicalism absolutely alone, who gave up every old friend, male and female, rather than resign the beliefs she has struggled to in solitude, who again in embracing active socialism has run counter to the views of her nearest male friends. Such a woman may very likely go wrong, but I think she may venture without conceit to at least claim independence of judgment. I did not make the acquaintance of one of my present socialist comrades, male or female, until I had embraced socialism. A foolish paragraph, as are all self-defenses, and a mischievous one, as all retort breeds fresh strife but not yet had come the self-control that estimates the judgments of others at their true value, that recks not of praise and blame, nor yet had I learned that evil should not be met with evil, wrath with wrath, nor yet were the words of the Buddha the law to which I strove to render obedience. Hatred ceases not by hatred at any time. Hatred ceases by love. The year 1886 was a terrible one for labor, everywhere reductions of wages, everywhere increase of the numbers of the unemployed. Turning over the pages of Our Corner, I see socialist notes filled month after month with a monotonous tale. There is a reduction of wages at such and such a place. So many men have been discharged at blank, owing to the slackness of trade. Our hearts sank lower and lower as summer passed into autumn, the coming winter threatened to add to starvation the bitter pains of cold. The agitation for the eight hours' day increased in strength as the unemployed grew more and more numerous week by week. We can't stand it, a sturdy, quiet fellow had said to me during the preceding winter. Flesh and blood can't stand it, and two months of this bitter cold, too. We may as well starve idle as starve working, had said another, with a fierce laugh. And a spirit of sullen discontent was spreading everywhere discontent that was wholly justified by facts. But, ah, how patient they were, for the most part, how sadly, pathetically patient, this crucified Christ humanity. Wrongs that would set my heart and my tongue afire would be accepted as a matter of course. O blind and mighty people, how my heart went out to you, trampled on, abused, derided, asking so little and needing so much, so pathetically grateful for the pettiest services, so loving and so loyal to those who offered you but their poor services and helpless love. Deeper and deeper into my innermost nature ate the growing desire to succor, to suffer for, to save. I had long given up my social reputation, 
I now gave up with ever-increasing surrender, ease, comfort, time. The passion of pity grew stronger and stronger, fed by each new sacrifice, and each sacrifice led me nearer and nearer to the threshold of that gateway beyond which stretched a path of renunciation I had never dreamed of, which those might tread who were ready wholly to strip off self for man's sake, who for love's sake would surrender love's return from those they served, and would go out into the darkness for themselves, that they might, with their own souls as fuel, feed the light of the world. As the suffering deepened with the darkening months, the meetings of the unemployed grew in number, and the murmurs of discontent became louder. The Social Democratic Federation carried on an outdoor agitation, not without making blunders, being composed of human beings, but with abundant courage and self-sacrifice. The policy of breaking up socialist meetings went on while other meetings were winked at, and John Williams, a fiery speaker, but a man with a record of pathetic struggle and patient heroism, was imprisoned for two months for speaking in the open air, and so nearly starved in jail that he came out with his health broken for life. 1887 dawned, the year that was to close so stormily, and socialists everywhere were busying themselves on behalf of the unemployed, urging vestries to provide remunerative work for those applying for relief, assailing the local government board with practicable proposals for utilizing the productive energies of the unemployed, circulating suggestions to municipalities and other local representative bodies, urging remedial measures. A four days oral debate with Mr. Foote and a written debate with Mr. Bradlow occupied some of my energies, and helped in the process of education to which public opinion was being subjected. Both these debates were largely circulated as pamphlets. A series of afternoon debates between representative speakers was organized at South Place Institute, and Mr. Corey Grant and myself had a lively discussion, I affirming that the existence of classes who live upon unearned incomes is detrimental to the welfare of the community, and ought to be put an end to by legislation. Another debate, in this very quarrelsome spring of 1887, was a written one in the National Reformer, between the Reverend G. F. Handel Rowe and myself, on the proposition, Is atheism logically tenable, and is there a satisfactory atheistic system for the guidance of human conduct? And so the months went on, and the menace of misery grew louder and louder, till in September I find myself writing, This one thing is clear. Society must deal with the unemployed, or the unemployed will deal with society. Stormier and stormier becomes the social outlook, and they at least are not the worst enemies of society who seek to find some way through the breakers by which the ship of the commonwealth may pass into quiet waters. Some amusement turned up in the shape of a Charing Cross Parliament in which we debated with much vigor the burning questions of the day. We organized a compact socialist party, defeated a liberal government, took the reins of office, and, after a Queen's speech in which Her Majesty addressed her loyal commons with a plainness of speech never before or since heard from the throne, we brought in several bills of a decidedly heroic character. G. Bernard Shaw, as President of the Local Government Board, and I, as Home Secretary, came in for a good deal of criticism in connection with various drastic measures. An International Free Thought Congress, held in London, entailed fairly heavy work, and the science classes were ever with us. Another written debate came with October, this time on the teachings of Christianity, making the fifth of these set discussions held by me during the year. The same month brought a change, painful but just. I resigned my much-prized position as co-editor of the National Reformer, 
and the number for October 23rd bore Charles Bradlow's name alone. The change did not affect my work on the paper, but I merely became a subordinate, though remaining, of course, joint proprietor. The reason cannot be more accurately given than in the paragraph penned at the time. For a considerable time past, and lately in increasing numbers, complaints have reached me from various quarters of the inconvenience and uncertainty that result from the divided editorial policy of this paper on the question of socialism. Some months ago I proposed to avoid this difficulty by resigning my share in the editorship, but my colleagues, with characteristic liberality, asked me to let the proposal stand over and see if matters would not adjust themselves. But the difficulty, instead of disappearing, has only become more pressing, and we both feel that our readers have a right to demand that it be solved. When I became co-editor of this paper, I was not a socialist, and although I regard socialism as the necessary and logical outcome of the radicalism which for so many years the national reformer has taught, Still, as in avowing myself a socialist, I have taken a distinct step. The partial separation of my policy in labor questions from that of my colleague has been of my own making, and not of his, and it is therefore for me to go away. Over by far the greatest part of our sphere of action we are still substantially agreed, and are likely to remain so. But since, as socialism becomes more and more a question of practical politics, differences of theory tend to produce differences in conduct. And since a political paper must have a single editorial program in practical politics, it would obviously be most inconvenient for me to retain my position as co-editor. Therefore I resume my former position as contributor only, thus clearing the national reformer of all responsibility for the views I hold. To this Mr. Bradlow added the following. I need hardly add to this how very deeply I regret the necessity for Mrs. Besant's resignation of the joint editorship of this journal and the real grief I feel in accepting this break in a position in which she has rendered such enormous service to the free thought and radical cause. As a most valued contributor, I trust the national reformer may never lose the efficient aid of her brain and pen. For thirteen years this paper has been richer for good by the measure of her never-ceasing and most useful work. I agree with her that a journal must have a distinct editorial policy, and I think this distinctness the more necessary when, as in the present case, Every contributor has the greatest freedom of expression. I recognize in the fullest degree the spirit of self-sacrifice in which the lines, to which I add these words, have been penned by Mrs. Besant. Charles Bradlaugh It was a wrench, this breaking of a tie for which a heavy price had been paid thirteen years before, but it was just. Any one who makes a change with which pain is connected is bound, in honor and duty, to take that pain as much as possible on himself. He must not put his sacrifice on others, nor pay his own ransom with their coin. There must be honor kept in the life that reaches towards the ideal, for broken faith to that is the only real infidelity. And there was another reason for the change that I dared not name to him, for his quick loyalty would then have made him stubbornly determined against change. I saw the swift turning of public opinion, a gradual approach to him among liberals who had hitherto held aloof, and I knew that they looked upon me as a clog and a burden, and that were I less prominently with him, his way would be the easier to tread. So I slipped more and more into the background, no longer went with him to his meetings. My use to him in public was over, for I had become a hindrance instead of help. While he was outcast and hated, I had the pride of standing at his side. When all the fair-weather friends came buzzing round him, I served him best by self-effacement, 
and I never loved him better than when I stood aside. But I continued all the literary work unaltered, and no change of opinions touched his kindness to me, although when, a little later, I joined the Theosophical Society, he lost his trust in my reasoning powers and judgment. In this same month of October the unemployed began walking in procession through the streets, and harshness on the part of the police led to some rioting. Sir Charles Warren thought it his duty to dragoon London meetings after the fashion of Continental prefects, with the inevitable result that an ill-feeling grew up between the people and the police. At last we formed a Socialist Defense Association, in order to help poor workmen brought up and sentenced on police evidence only, without any chance of being given them of proper legal defense, and I organized a band of well-to-do men and women who promised to obey a telegraphic summons night or day, and to bail out any prisoner arrested for exercising the ancient right of walking in procession and speaking. To take one instance, Mr. Burley, the well-known war correspondent, and Mr. Winks were arrested and run in with Mr. J. Knight, a workman, for seditious language. I went down to the police station to offer bail for the latter. Chief Constable Howard accepted bail for Messrs. Burley and Winks, but refused it for Mr. Knight. The next day, at the police court, the preposterous bail of four hundred pounds was demanded for Mr. Knight, and supplied by my faithful band, and on the next hearing Mr. Poland, solicitor to the Treasury, withdrew the charge against him for lack of evidence. Then came the closing of Trafalgar Square, and the unexpected and high-handed order that cost some men their lives, many their liberty, and hundreds the most serious injuries. The Metropolitan Radical Federation had called a meeting for November 13th to protest against the imprisonment of Mr. O'Brien, and as Mr. Matthews, from his place in the House, had stated that there was no intention of interfering with bona fide political meetings, the Radical clubs did not expect police interference. On November 9th, Sir Charles Warren had issued an order forbidding all meetings in the square, but the clubs trusted the promise of the Home Secretary. On Saturday evening only, November 12th, when all arrangements were completed, did he issue a peremptory order forbidding processions within a certain area. With this trap suddenly sprung upon them, the delegates from the clubs, the Fabian Society, the Social Democratic Federation, and the Socialist League met on that same Saturday evening to see to any details that had been possibly left unsettled. It was finally decided to go to the square as arranged, and, if challenged by the police, to protest formally against the illegal interference, then to break up the processions and leave the members to find their own way to the square. It was also decided to go Sunday after Sunday to the square until the right of public meetings was vindicated. The procession I was in started from Clerkenwell Green and walked with its banner in front and the chosen speakers, including myself, immediately behind the flag. As we were moving slowly and quietly along one of the narrow streets debouching on Trafalgar Square, Wondering whether we would be challenged, there was a sudden charge, and without a word the police were upon us with uplifted truncheons. The banner was struck down, and men and women were falling under a hail of blows. There was no attempt at resistance. The people were too much astounded at the unprepared attack. They scattered, leaving some of their number on the ground too much injured to move, and then made their way in twos and threes to the square. It was garrisoned by police, drawn up in serried rows, that could only have been broken by a deliberate charge. Our orders were to attempt no violence, and we attempted none. Mr. Cunningham Graham and Mr. John Burns, arm in arm, tried to pass through the police, and were savagely cut about the head and arrested. Then ensued a scene to be remembered. 
the horse police charged in squadrons at a hand gallop, rolling men and women over like ninepins, while the foot police struck recklessly with their truncheons, cutting a road through the crowd that closed immediately behind them. I got on a wagonette and tried to persuade the driver to pull his trap across one of the roads and to get others in line so as to break the charges of the mounted police. But he was afraid and drove away to the embankment, so I jumped out and went back to the square. At last a rattle of cavalry, and up came the lifeguards, cleverly handled but hurting none, trotting their horses gently and soldiering the crowd apart. And then the Scots guards, with bayonets fixed, marched through and occupied the north of the square. Then the people retreated as we passed round the word, Go home, go home. The soldiers were ready to fire, the people unarmed. It would have been but a massacre. Slowly the square emptied and all was stilled. All other processions were treated as ours had been, and the injuries inflicted were terrible. Peaceable, law-abiding workmen who had never dreamed of rioting were left with broken legs, broken arms, wounds of every description. One man, Linnell, died almost immediately, others from the effect of their injuries. The next day, a regular court-martial in Bow Street Police Court. Witnesses kept out by the police, men dazed with their wounds, decent workmen of unblemished character who had never been charged in a police court before, sentenced to imprisonment without a chance of defense. But a gallant band rallied to their rescue. William T. Stead, most chivalrous of journalists, opened a defense fund, and money reined in. My pledged bail came up by the dozen, and we got the men out on appeal. By sheer audacity I got into the police court, addressed the magistrate, too astounded by my profound courtesy and calm assurance to remember that I had no right there, and then produced bail after bail of the most undeniable character and respectability, which no magistrate could refuse. Breathing time gained, a barrister, Mr. W. M. Thompson, worked day after day with hearty devotion and took up the legal defense. Fines we paid, and here Mrs. Marks Aveling did eager service. A pretty regiment I led out of Millbank Prison after paying their fines. Bruised, clothes torn, hatless, we must have looked a disreputable lot. We stopped and bought hats to throw an air of respectability over our cortege, and we kept together until I saw the men into train and omnibus, lest with the bitter feelings now roused, conflict should again arise. We formed the Law and Liberty League to defend all unjustly assailed by the police, and thus rescued many a man from prison. We gave poor Linnell, killed in Trafalgar Square, a public funeral. Sir Charles Warren forbade the passing of the hearse through any of the main thoroughfares west of Waterloo Bridge, so the processions waited there for it. W. T. Stead, R. Cunningham Graham, Herbert Burroughs, and myself walked on one side of the coffin, William Morris, F. Smith, R. Dowling, and J. Seddon on the other. The Reverend Stuart D. Headlam, the officiating clergyman, walked in front. Fifty stewards, carrying long wands, guarded the coffin. From Wellington Street to Bow Cemetery the road was one mass of human beings who uncovered reverently as the slain man went by. At Aldgate the procession took three-quarters of an hour to pass one spot, and thus we bore Linnell to his grave, symbol of a cruel wrong, the vast, orderly, silent crowd, bareheaded, making mute protest against the outrage wrought. It is pleasant to put on record here Mr. Bradlow's grave approval of the heavy work done in the police courts, and the following paragraph shows how generously he could praise one not acting on his own lines. As I have on most serious matters of principle recently differed very widely from my brave and loyal co-worker, 
and as the difference has been regrettably emphasized by her resignation of her editorial functions on this journal, it is the more necessary that I should say how thoroughly I approve, and how grateful I am to her, for her conduct in not only obtaining bail and providing legal assistance for the helpless unfortunates in the hands of the police, but also for her daily personal attendance and wise conduct at the police stations and police courts, where she has done so much to abate harsh treatment on the one hand and rash folly on the other. While I should not have marked out this as fitting woman's work, especially in the recent very inclement weather, I desire to record my view that it has been bravely done, well done, and most usefully done, and I wish to mark this the more emphatically as my views and those of Mrs. Besant seem wider apart than I could have deemed possible on many of the points of principle underlying what is every day growing into a most serious struggle. Ever did I find Charles Bradlaugh thus tolerant of differences of opinion, generously eager to approve what to him seemed right, even in a policy he disapproved. The indignation grew and grew. The police were silently boycotted, but the people were so persistent and so tactful that no excuse for violence was given, until the strain on the police force began to tell, and the Tory government felt that London was being hopelessly alienated. So at last Sir Charles Warren fell, and a wiser hand was put at the helm. End of chapter 13